So, uh, if you were here during the greeting time, I, I asked this question. Um, I asked this question. Maybe you've heard this question before. Your favorite part about the Christmas season. Raise your hand if you've ever been asked that question before this morning. Okay, I feel like that's a typical question. It's what you ask after Thanksgiving dinner with your relatives and you've got nothing left to talk about. And you're like, oh. So what's your favorite part about, you know, Christmas? And so um, I actually realized something this week as I was thinking about this sermon series that we're about ready to start. I was thinking about this question. I think about how often I've asked this question, how often people have asked me this question. What is your favorite part about Christmas? So we all have that answer we gave, right? We all, we all gave an answer. You know, it's interesting. Now, maybe this is not you. This, you are the exception. But all of my life, I've asked that question and I've answered that question. And you know what answer I've never heard and frankly have never given myself? I've never said my favorite part about Christmas is the meaning of Christmas. Jesus. We always, and maybe, maybe your answers reflected this. Where your answer is like, oh, I, love, I, I love the snow, that's a popular one. I love the lights. There's some crazy people that are like, I love the red cups at Starbucks. <laughs> right? right? You're like, you need to enjoy Christmas more, okay? You got, you got one over here. Like, okay, at least, you know, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you when you confess that sin. Um, but, but how often do we answer it that way? And it's... It's a pretty obvious thing that when we enter into Christmas season, and frankly, even before Christmas season, the focus is not really on Jesus. In fact, it's really hard to put the focus on Jesus in our culture and, and with, with raising kids, too. And so we're doing this sermon series called Advent, and the aim of this sermon series, the hope of of this sermon series is that we would put our focus on the reason for the season, that we would put our focus and we would think about, we would meditate, we would even celebrate the true meaning of Christmas, and that is Jesus. And so one of the things, maybe you parents in this room, maybe one of the things that you can be thinking about, it's something that Melissa and I are wrestling with, is how do we take the Christmas season... um, and help our kids see and celebrate the fact that it's about Jesus. Like, it's one thing to get them to say, hey, the reason for Christmas is Jesus. But why are you excited? Because I know what I'm getting on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And then we've got all these different parties. So they get, like, Christmas presents almost every single day in, in the month of December. So how, how, do we, how do we help our children and even help ourselves Put the focus on Jesus. And so that's the aim of this sermon series is we're going to try so hard to put our focus on Jesus. But I want to do it in a very unique way. Um, Two different ways I want to do this is you'll notice that the Christmas story, Jesus's birth, is not a normal birth narrative. It's not a normal birth story. You have this teenage girl who's pregnant, and yet she's a virgin. Okay, so we already see this is very unique here. This is not the normal story. And then this this child that she's pregnant with is supposed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and then they've got to travel some long distance, and, and then the first people to hear about it are these shepherds, but wait, isn't this supposed to be like the King of Israel, and, and he's born in a barn? So everything in this story is very unique. It's a very, very unique 
an almost backwards story when you think about who Jesus is. But the reason why the story of Jesus' birth takes place the way that it does is so that we can see the character of God. That the story of Jesus' birth, the fact that he's born in a barn, in a manger, tells us something about who God is. The fact that shepherds are the first ones to show up tells us something about who God is. The fact that they have to travel this really long distance tells us something about who God is. And so um, the aim of this Advent sermon series is to look at the uniqueness of the story in a way where we can see the unique and profound character of God. That God is glorious, that God is sovereign, that God is compassionate. And today we're going to talk about God is faithful. But here's what I'm most excited about. The kind of unique way we're going to look at this story is, if you have your Bibles, it looks like every single one of you do. Good job. Um, Or your electronic Bible. Um, Where in your Bible, where does the story begin about Jesus' birth? Like right, boom, right there. You have all of this. One of the things I'm not sure we realize is that when we talk about Jesus' birth, we are two-thirds through the story. So yes, the story of Jesus' birth starts right here, but what I want us to see and what we're going to be aiming towards doing in this month is we're going to see how the story of Jesus' birth actually starts all the way at the beginning through here. And so today, uh, I've got a tall task. Um, I want us to look at the book of Genesis and see how even in the very beginning, we are drawn our attention to, to Jesus. Jesus is spoken about in the very first pages of the book of Genesis. And really, the whole book of Genesis is drawing us to Jesus. And so I'm going to talk order. I'm going to summarize just the major themes of the book of Genesis in in one sermon here. Um, I'm going to get a little bit of help. We're actually going to watch a video that's going to summarize the first section of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11. He's going to do it in seven minutes. I'm going to take the rest of the time and do it a little bit longer than seven minutes. So uh, join me as we watch this video about Genesis 1 through 11. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline is divided into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible. God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness and makes a world where life can And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world. And they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf. Which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life is born. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place in which they 
in starting a local world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death, because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion against God. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy, they take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, and in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are. Now, they can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and humans is lost. So they go run and hide from God, and then when God finds them, they start this game of blame-shifting about who rebelled first. Now right here, the story stops, and there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head. Which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they just rebelled, and what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field is going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11 they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain is so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomizing the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquired as many wives as they wanted, and they produced the Nephilim, these great warriors of all. Whichever view is 
right. The point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining this good world and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of this world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil in the great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family. Commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed, just like the first. And the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now at large. And so God humbles their pride now this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with this world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned back. That we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships. We conflict, violence, and ultimate death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, the hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1-11 through is all about. Is that, like, not a super helpful video? Yes. Hey, I, I, I show this, and there's actually, I think, going to be a lot more to come. Um, if uh, This is called thebibleproject.com. Uh, my new favorite Bible teacher is this guy named Tim Matthew. That's his voice. Uh, and, and so you can go on to thebibleproject.com, and they have this for every single book of the Bible. Um, super, super duper helpful. Is it not? Amen? Amen. So, um, so one of the things, or a few of the things that he draws our attention to here in this is there's these three major themes that we see really in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, Genesis that carry us on through the whole entire Old Testament, frankly, the New Testament too, that we cannot miss, we need to see. The first one is this, is that God creates humanity in his image, that we were created for a purpose. And that purpose is to reflect his glorious great, magnificent image. The idea is that when people look at you and I, they would see our great and awesome God. We were created to bear the image of God. The next major theme that we see here is this good versus evil. In chapter 1, God is creating um, the universe. Each day he's creating something different. And at the end of each day, he says this, and it was 
good. And then he tells Adam and Eve, hey, you can have everything. Everything except one thing. It's like one. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's interesting, in chapter 3, when the serpent comes, Eve is there, and we see again our attention drawn to this language of good and evil, good and evil. And it even says that Eve saw that the tree was good for fruit. And so she redefines God's vision of good and evil and and eats. And then in this one really almost just, it's easy to miss this verse in Genesis 3. I think it's verse 15 where it talks about this wounded victor. And like you, you should be thinking, I think I know who that is. I think I know who that is. Who's the wounded victor? Yeah, like you don't have to like, you're like very hesitant. Okay, you know, just... This is the one, this is the time where you're like, yes, Jesus is always the answer anyway. So, you're, so anytime you don't know the answer, it's from Jesus. So when you're at work, people ask you questions. It's Jesus. Um, yes, that's it. It's Jesus. So we're being alluded to this, this Jesus, but we're left wondering. And by the way, the ancient readers, when they read this, they're like, ah, oh, who is this? And, and there was a lot of angst around it. And, and we don't have that angst because we know that it's Jesus. So you have these three themes created in the image of God, the redefining of God's vision of good and evil, and we twist it and pervert it. And then this, this picture of hope, of this wounded victor. And so what we see throughout the whole entire Old Testament is um, Tim Mackey, he uses this language of big story, little story. And so if you read the Old Testament, you will find that it consists of hundreds of little stories, little story, little story, little story, little story. But if you pay close attention, you realize that every little story has to do with the big story of this wounded victor. Boom, mic drop. Was that like, you're going to read the Old Testament completely different from here on out. I was expecting you guys to be a little more excited about that than I was. Um, So here we go. We pick up in Genesis chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 12, where we've just gotten done talking about all the nations, Genesis 1 through 11, and pretty much how all the nations just keep blowing it, blowing it, blowing it. None of them can live up to living out the image of God. And then all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, our attention is brought to this guy named Abram. His name is going to be changed to Abraham. So if I refer to him in both ways, you know I'm talking about the same guy. And God comes to him. And now listen to this. By the way, I've got something really cool to show you. I hope it's, I hope it's going to work out. Um, we'll see. So it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your father's country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So here's, here's my new trick. See if this works. Oh, it's working. Ooh, ooh. I oh, you're a staff member. You have to clap. Thank you, Hillary. Hillary's always good for a laugh or a clap. That's it's great. Thank you. Shame on you, the rest of you. Um, I'm just teasing. First John one nine. Uh, but here's what I want you to draw your attention to. Notice what God is saying to Abram. By the way, God comes to Abram, and Abram is an idol worshiper. He worships other gods. 
It's not like he's righteous. It's not like he's following the Lord. No, 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 no. He's worshiping other gods. He's an idol worshiper. And God comes to him and says, okay, Abram, I've chosen you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. So notice he's saying, hey, Abram, everything that you know, I want you to leave it behind. And I'm going to take you to this land. This land. Now, Moses almost certainly wrote the book of Genesis during this Exodus period. And so you'll notice that as, as Genesis is being written, you're getting flash forwards to Exodus. And, and so this flash forward, there's going to be this land. And we keep reading. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Where do we hear that word bless? Genesis 2. God creates humanity, blesses them, blesses them. Does the same thing for Noah. Again, so you're getting this language that's drawing us back to to God starting something new. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bless. We've heard that language before. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is impossible to read the Old Testament and understand it without this verse. One of the most important verses in the whole entire Bible because it sets the stage for God's mission. And here's the mission. Nobody is living out this created aim of of reflecting the image of God. And so God comes to Abram and says, okay, you're my guy. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you into this land. And oh, by the way, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have a child. And then they're going to have children. And then they're going to have children. Your family tree is going to blow up into this huge nation. The nation of Israel. And he says, and I'm going to bless you. But here's the deal, Abraham. I'm going to do this so that you can be a blessing to all the families of the world. And the idea is that Abraham is to reflect the image of God. And his family is to reflect the image of God by serving God and walking with God and living for God. And other people would look in and say, I want to follow that God of yours. He's supposed to be a light to all the nations. Israel's supposed to be a light to all the nations. And so, let's move on to this story. He commissions him. Abraham leaves. And then we go to Genesis 15. We fast forward. Um, Now, a few years has passed. It's, It's worth noting that when Abraham first received this call, him and his wife are in their 70s. Anyone have ever, any of you ever had a child in your 70s? Um, obviously not, clearly. Um, and anyone, here's a better question, because I don't know if we have some 70-year-olds here. If you are, you look really young. Um, but anyone know any 70-year-olds who are having babies? That's how old Abraham is. And God had yet said, I'm going to give you a child. So they're in their 70s. Abraham obeys God and he leaves everything and he goes to this land, but it's not quite his land yet. And he's kind of wandering, living in tents. He's literally camping 
like, thanks God, I really want to camp. And living and camping and a few years go by and we come to this scene. Now this scene has just followed um, Abraham getting kind of in a fight with some really powerful nations because of his you know, pain in the neck nephew. And so he's a little bit fearful. And so we come to this scene where God has yet to seem to come through and be faithful with these promises that he made to Abram. Listen to what it says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house, Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, God comes and says, Hey, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. Oh, great, that thing, I knew this was going to crash. There you go. But um, literally, God comes and says, Do not fear. And Abram's going, God, it's been years. And you still haven't made good on your promise. I don't have a kid. In fact, I have a servant. And he's going to be the one that's going to inherit everything. So what about that promise, God? And so we jump to Genesis 15. This is why we have our Bibles in church, friends. You always got to be prepared. We jump in and, and it continues and says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to actually number them. And then he said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. You can count the stars. You can count how many descendants you will have. So we live in modern day of astronomy and know there's an infinity of stars. And it says, And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's a sermon right there that we need to, to, to see. That Abram is made right with God simply by faith. Simply by belief. Simply by believing. And so Abraham believes him. And then notice this next one. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Oh, fast forwarding, chapter, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words... He's saying, God, it's been a few years. Has this ever happened to you? Where you feel like God's called you to something, and you move in that direction, and God doesn't show up. And you're like, but, but God, like I thought that you called me to this. Or maybe you're serving the Lord really, really faithfully, and 2008 comes along, and you lose everything financially. And you're going, God, your word says that you're going to provide for me, but it doesn't feel like you're providing for me. Like, how do I know that you're going to be faithful? That is what Abraham is asking God. You ever ask God that? God, how do I know that you're faithful? 
My kid is sick and he might not make it. How do I know that you're going to be faithful to me? I'm walking through a wreck of a marriage and it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. How do I know that you're going to be faithful to me? That is the question that Abraham is asking. It is a massive question. It is a question about God's character. Is God faithful? Can you call on God? Can you get on your knees and pray with confidence knowing, hey, I don't know if the answer is yes or no or maybe, but I do know that my God is faithful. Do we know that? This is huge. And this is the question that he is asking. God, how do I know that you're faithful? Listen to what happens. Now, you're going to have to follow with me because it doesn't seem like what God is saying makes any sense. Because he literally asks, how do I know that you're going to make good on this promise, God? And God says, here's what I want you to do. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old. I had to look up what a heifer was. No, there's no pride in that. I'm, 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 still, I'm still a student of Scripture, friends. Bring this female cow, is what it was, of three years old, of, of great value is what it was. And, and a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. You're like, what does this have to do with the faithfulness of God? Walk with me, friends. Walk with me. We're going to see it. And he brought him all these things, and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So really unique picture. He gets these different animals. He cuts them in half and he puts one half on this side. He takes the other half of the animal and puts it on this side. And, and so imagine there's, there's a little narrow path in between and to your left and to your right are these cut open bloody nasty animals and so Abraham he does this obeys God and and all of a sudden these vultures come down and he's driving them away and you know Abraham's going like what is my God is crazy like what what's happening here follow then the Lord said to Abram so flash forward here follow then the Lord said to Abraham know for certain that your offspring, which you don't even have yet, you don't even have any kids, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. Anyone know what this is referring to? Slavery in Egypt. By the way, it's worth noting that God makes this promise to Abraham and says, it's going to be 400 years before much of it's going to happen. And in the midst of it, you're actually going to be in slavery. And so there is this discomfort of sorts of like, like God's going to make good on his promise, but it's not going to be easy. Anyone realize that walking with Christ is not the easiest thing in the world? He says, okay, this is going to happen. Your people are going to go into slavery for 400 years, but I, God says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions 
And then notice this. When the sun had gone down, I don't know if it's working here. This is, this is, yes. When, yeah, oh, there, oh, now we're fast forward. Bring me back to, Micah, do the manual version here. Brooke told me, you're not allowed to use this until you got it down. She's right again. (laughs) When the sun had come down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, notice here, you've got this smoking fire pot, this flaming torch. Like, what is going on here? Abraham falls into this deep sleep. Anyone ever remember the part in the Bible where someone falls into a deep sleep? A guy named Adam? Abraham seems to fall into this similar kind of deep sleep, or at least it's described that way. And he has this dream. And in this dream, he's got these animals that have been cut in pieces, and there's this, this, this smoking, flaming pot going through these pieces. What's going on here? It's helpful to understand that in ancient times, when certain people groups or rulers wanted to make a covenant with another people group, like, hey, we should kind of come together, combine our, our, our armies, have an, a, a, an alliance of sorts. So, like, if you get attacked, we'll help you. If we get attacked, you help us. So, so the way that they would make covenants is they would literally take these animals, they would cut them in half, and they'd put some on this side, some on that side. You would walk through side by side, making a covenant with one another in the word picture is this. I will hold to this covenant we are making. And both of them would walk through and it was their way of saying, if I break this covenant, may I be like this dirty mess right here. It was a word picture of I will covenant myself to you in the promises we have made side by side. We will walk by and if I break the covenant, may I be like these cut up pieces But notice, who walks through? Abram doesn't. God is pictured as this flaming, flaming pot. The the image is, remember in Exodus where God would rest, it would be like this fire over, over the tent. Abram doesn't walk through, only God does. Why? Because God knows that Abram is going to wake up and not long later, he's going to go and talk with his wife and his wife is going to be like, Abram, God is taking forever giving us a child. You know what you should do? See my servant? Go hang out with her. And Abram, in a way, disowns this covenant and sleeps with his wife's servant. 
And then Abram will go into this city in, in, in which he knows that his wife is pretty, even in her 70s and 80s. Wow, Sarah's got it going on of sorts. But he knows that, that people see his wife is pretty and that if they know he's married to her, they'll probably kill him. And so he acts like, oh, I'm not married to her. She's my sister. And so, so literally, when you read the story and we look at Abraham as this like, let's be like Abraham. Friends, don't be like Abraham. The story of Genesis are not stories to necessarily be modeled. And so Abram doesn't walk through this covenant. And it's God's way of saying, you know what? If you break this covenant... I will still be faithful. Over and over and over again, I will be faithful to you. That's why Abram doesn't walk through. And Abram ends up finally having a son at the age of 100 with his wife. And, and, and then he has a son, and then, then he has 12 sons. And so you, you get this scene, the end of Genesis, where Jacob, who is second generation, third, third generation, excuse me, third generation of Abram, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That sounds familiar. Israel has 12 sons, and 10 of them decide we should sell one of our brothers into slavery because we don't like him. And so they sell Joseph into slavery. You know this story. And he goes to Egypt. He ends up getting thrown in jail. And finally Joseph is able to find himself by the sovereignty of God. Somehow second in command in all of Egypt. Joseph says there's going to be this massive, massive famine. We need to save up the food. Save up the food. And so all of Egypt, they save up all this food. And everyone around them is in deep famine. And so those ten brothers that sold Joseph into slavery, they say, we need to go down to Egypt because we hear there's food there. And they go and they see Joseph. But they don't know it's Joseph, do they? They have no idea it's Joseph. They ask for food. Joseph notices it's his 10 brothers. And Joseph pretty much plays a bunch of tricks on them, throws one of them in prison. Uh, I don't think he was laughing through it, but, but probably not the wise thing to do or the godly thing to do by any means. And Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And he provides for them. And he has all of them come down and live in Egypt. And notice how the book of Genesis chapter 50 ends here. In the last few verses here, um, we see... When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil. Ever heard that word? All the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. So, so don't miss what happens here. Israel ends up dying. The brothers realize, oh my goodness, probably the only reason Joseph provided for us, the only reason Joseph kept us alive is because daddy, you know, daddy was daddy. Daddy's not going to let, you know, Joseph kill all the sons. But now that Israel's dead, Joseph's probably going to come 
and kill us. And so notice what it says next. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't don't fear, for, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Don't miss this language here. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. This sentence is so significant because it recaps all of Genesis and it tells us what's going to happen for the rest of the Old Testament. You know what the dominant theme, or at least one of the dominant themes in the whole entire Old Testament is? It's that the people of Israel who are called to be a light and a blessing to other nations, who are called to reflect the image of God, they are going to choose evil instead of good over and over and over and over and over and over again. They are going to continually fail to live out what they have been called to do. And you know what God does? He remembers Genesis 15. Where Abram doesn't walk through the covenant. Only he does. And God remains faithful. Over and over and over again. And so what happens in the Old Testament is you see the people of Israel, they just keep choosing evil and keep failing and God keeps providing and keep providing. And then about about a quarter of the way through the Old Testament, it becomes abundantly clear, Israel's just never going to get it. The people of Israel are never going to be a light to all the nations. They are never going to fully and completely and effectively reflect the image of God. And about a quarter of the way through the Old Testament, the dominant theme shifts. And it goes from these people choosing to be evil over and over again. That continues. But the most dominant theme is now the wounded victor. The dominant theme throughout the Old Testament tells us over and over again, there's going to be this Messiah to come. And he's going to save Israel from their constant failures. And not just that, he's going to be the image of God that they never could be. He's going to be a light to all the nations like they never could be. And you get to the very Last verse, last two verses in the Old Testament. And Micah gives this prophecy. Micah says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Remember that, Elijah the prophet. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So the last two verses are this prophecy. Before the Messiah comes. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. There's going to be this Elijah-like figure. Do you know where Luke starts? 
In the days of Herod, Luke writes, King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, I like that name, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statues of the Lord. But they had no child. I think I've heard this story before. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Remember that? Remember that? Remember this? Do you think God like orchestrated this and was like, oh, I didn't even mean to do that. Wow, that's actually pretty cool. God is drawing us back to Genesis 12. He's drawing us back to Genesis 15. He's drawing us back to that covenant and he's saying, okay, you know what? I didn't forget you. I didn't forget you. You know what? You keep forgetting me, but I didn't forget you. And we see this picture of two old people. And it says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitudes of the people were praying outside at an hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth, you will bear, she will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's room, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and He will go before Him in the spirit and the power of... Who? You ever heard that one before? <laughs> Isn't God just amazing? This, like, this amazes me. I wish you, know, you would at least show me, like, m- m- act like it amazes you. Anyone? Amen if it amazes you? Amen! To turn the hearts of the fathers to children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so we see God faithful. And it's amazing. It's amazing how, how God is faithful. It's not just that He's faithful, it's that how He is faithful. And this is how He is faithful. He realizes that the people of Israel, they're never going to do what He called them to do. And so God says, I still need to be faithful to my promise. So I'm going to send my son. That none of them can do it. Isaiah says that God looked down. There was nobody who could do it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son. Colossians 1. He, Jesus, was the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1. That Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is this perfect image bearer. And God says, I'm going to be faithful. But I can't do it through them. So I'm going to take my son, Jesus. And he is not only going to be a light for all the nations, but he is going to take all of the evil 
we've ever done. All of the evil that's ever been done. All the evil that will ever be done. And he's going to nail it to the cross. So that by confessing our sins in him, he will do good by covering that sin for us. God is profoundly faithful. And so what does this mean for you and I? Let's go applicational here. Hopefully you see that our God has a a perfect track record that spans thousands of years. And He is faithful even when we're not faithful. And so what does this mean for you and I? Here's what I hope it means. I hope it means that we can be like Zechariah who's waiting for this Messiah, but it hasn't shown up yet, but he keeps on praying and he keeps on praying. He's praying for his son even though he's in old age because he knows his God is faithful. Do you believe that your God is faithful when you get on your knees in prayer? It means, for you and I, it means that if we have sin in our life, we can go to 1 John 1, 9 and and confess our sins and know that he he will wipe them away because of Christ. It means that when you are in the desert of your soul, we can remember, my God is faithful. And He proved that He is faithful. Not just by that covenant, but by this new covenant of Christ dying on the cross. Maybe the question is, are we faithful? Are we faithful to looking to His faithfulness? Let's pray. Father, I'm amazed. I'm amazed and overwhelmed by your faithfulness to us. I'm amazed and overwhelmed that we see this wounded victor in Genesis 3. You already knew it was going to happen, God. You already knew. And you saved us, and we thank you. So, Father, as we close with this last song... Would you open our hearts and give us an amazement of your faithfulness to us? And for those of us who feel stuck or those of us who maybe we've never trusted in Christ before in our lives and we're going, oh, I want to trust in that faithful God. Would you draw our hearts to just confess our need for you this morning? Pray this and everyone said, Amen. Amen.